Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today is historian Dr. Linda Porter, a winner of the Biographers Club Prize, former lecturer at Fordham University and the City University of New York, and author of five acclaimed works on British history in the 16th and 17th centuries. Dr. Porter also served as historical consultant on the BBC docudrama series, The Boleyns, A Scandalous Family, on which I was one of the talking heads and which at the time of recording for this, our UK listeners can still access online via the BBC iPlayer app and website. Dr. Porter, welcome and thank you very much for joining us on Single Malt History. Thank you very much for asking me, Gareth. I'm very much looking forward to answering some of the interesting questions I know you're going to put to me. Oh, fantastic. I'm I'm very glad we could make this uh, happen. So, well, to start at the beginning, uh, your first book was published in 2007, and it was a biography of Queen Mary I, Henry VIII's eldest daughter, who ruled England, Ireland, and Wales as their first crowned female head of state from 1553 to 1558, published in the UK as Mary Tudor the First Queen. It presented a very different Mary the First to the one we might have been used to. She has been presented in some histories as quite pathetic, a sort of plodding prologue to the reign of her younger half-sister Elizabeth I. What was the impression you had of Mary Tudor as a political and personal figure after writing her biography? Well, firstly, I think perhaps I should say that the impression I had of her after writing it was not the impression I'd necessarily had before I started. Uh, I chose her as a topic um, because at the time, you know, the, the history of women and particularly the history of queens was um, extremely fashionable and therefore would work commercially. Uh, and because uh, she hadn't been written about for quite a long time, whether you were for her or against her. And I thought that um, she was uh, an interesting topic. Um, she was our first female crowned head of state. Uh, she had had uh, what can only be described as an extremely dramatic life, um, uh, much of it, you know, touched with tragedy um, and illness, and at times one would have thought absolute despair almost. Um, she's been consistently reviled uh, throughout the centuries, though not necessarily in her lifetime or immediately afterwards. She had had a marriage which most people seem to view as a terrible failure and mistake. Um, she had uh, sibling rivalry with her sister Elizabeth. Uh, she had um, what would now be viewed as almost parental abuse from her father, Henry VIII. I mean, these were all things which at the time, if you were putting together a proposal for a, a royal biography, touched a chord with quite a lot of publishers, it has to be said. So uh, I approached her actually quite neutrally to begin with. I thought that there must be something that was worth looking at and reconsidering in this woman, but I didn't have a particular view of what it was. But when I looked at the sources, which are quite you know, copious and available, both manuscript and printed original sources, and um, the variety of biographies and books that have been written about her, uh, I found a woman who 
surprised me, uh, I suppose it's fair to say, uh, who was um, both extraordinarily brave and dedicated, but was not, as you've just alluded to, this rather pathetic lost figure uh, stumbling her way through her life until um, almost by chance uh, with, with the death of her brother at quite a young age. Uh, she becomes not just second person in the realm, but but actually the, the queen, at least in the terms of her father's will. And of course, she had to fight or at least appear to put up a fight for, for that particular uh, position. Uh, and I think it's really in looking at the track of, of Mary's life, of her uh, rather innocent and joyful life as a young girl, um, the breakup of her parents' marriage, which uh, distressed her very considerably. Uh, and I think it, it's perhaps worth considering with Mary as well that the the contrast between being a, a quite pampered and 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 happy, carefree princess to the concerns of watching her father try and and cast off her mother and and her life fall apart. Uh, she perhaps took more personally than uh, other royal children might have done at the time, because of course. It would be generally assumed nowadays that this must be awful and traumatic and everything. But in those days, as you well know, royal children didn't have very much contact with their parents anyhow. Uh, and though they might have thought that this was regretful, they wouldn't necessarily, I think, have had quite as much emotional involvement in it as, as Mary seems to have done. She was close to both her parents, or, or certainly had been. Uh, and I think it's not just that, and not, not, not just the emotional uncertainty, but at the back of it, what must have been the concern, which eventually, of course, was fully realised, what would this mean for her and her position? Uh, her father had raised her um, somewhat reluctantly, perhaps, but from time to time he had referred to her as the heir of England, uh, and if he didn't have a son, um, then um, she was the, the nearest in blood to him. So of course, he had a male nephew up in Scotland who uh, occasionally he reminded his sister Margaret could also be viewed as, as an heir to the throne of England. But he never seriously considered James V in, in that role. But I, I think it's not just the the collapse of a marriage, um, which nowadays we might view as regrettable, but you know, royal marriages were not the same as the, the, the kind of more modern marriage. It, it, it was also the fear of what her future would be. Uh, and if you throw that into the mix, what happened to her in 1533 when her father did finally marry Anne Boleyn and she, she was literally cast aside in the space of a number of weeks. She was no longer a princess. She had a reduced household. Um, she didn't wasn't permitted to come to court or see her mother. I mean, th these are things which at the age of 17 will have a, a profound effect on you and how you view yourself. Uh, and I think it's partly that that explains the, the kind of woman that, that Mary became, that she had always been up until that time, a person who had enjoyed life. And the view of her as someone who didn't enjoy it as soon as her father cast off her mother, I think is slightly misleading as well. When she had the opportunity to, I think that side of her still came out. It took a long time and she, she was partially restored to favour through the efforts of Jane Seymour, but it was a very gradual uh, sort of... Uh, uh, return to, to her father's favour. And I think when um, immediately after Anne Boleyn's 
execution in 1536, when she thought that perhaps she was free of all of this at last, which was a terrible miscalculation and showed how little she understood her father, in fact. Uh, you can see in that summer, as she appeals to Thomas Cromwell for help, that, that she has actually lost the plot, as it were, that she really didn't understand that Anne's death did not mean that she would suddenly become Princess Mary and uh, official heiress to the throne again. And that, of course, her father was going to further humiliate and abase her by forcing her to sign an agreement saying that, you know, his um, his marriage to her mother had been invalid, um, that she wasn't, you know, uh, she wasn't legitimate, um, that she had to abjure her mother's religion in favour of the new arrangements for, for Henry's church, at least as far as the arrangements of Henry and the Pope were concerned. I mean, there is the view that many people have that Henry VIII lived and died a Catholic, and in, probably in terms of his actual belief, canonical belief, he did. Um, and so, you know, Mary was left in 1536 completely adrift. And the fact that she had a, a more pleasant, briefly, a more pleasant stepmother probably was simply not enough to bring her back from, from the emotional turmoil that must have beset her. Uh, and I think I found in, in looking at her a woman who did go through various stages of her life. But the interesting thing about her is that she never really wavered. She she defied Henry VIII in a, in a way that few other people got away with. And I think had she not been his daughter, she wouldn't have got away with it. And of course, he he managed to execute two wives. So there was nothing to say that he might not do the same thing to a wayward daughter, but, but he didn't. Uh, I don't think she ever loved him after mm. what happened in 1536. I think she was probably always afraid of him to some degree, and, and with reason. You know, <laughs> it would have been prudent to be afraid of him. And that she didn't really know any um, proper security and happiness until Henry married Catherine Parr who was only four years old and older than Mary herself and who, uh, you know, was a, a an equal, um, perhaps not in terms of birth, but it's certainly in terms of the um, role to which Catherine Parr had rather unexpectedly risen. And I think those were happy years of her life. Um, her, her, the period of her life under Edward VI was very difficult. She was his heir. Um, she he took the country down a much more um, evangelical religious path than uh, her father had done. Uh, and she uh, was m most of the time away from court. She only came occasionally. Uh, and her meetings with her brother were difficult. Um, she had viewed him, I think, as, as almost like a, a small son for much of his life because there was such a big difference between them. And the way he behaved during his six years as king, I think, cut her to the quick. Uh, but still, you know, she she retained um, this basic, very strong core as a person and a, a sense in her own identity and destiny, even if life had appeared to almost completely scupper it at different points. And I think the other thing that I found about her, not just her firmness of purpose, uh, was that, you know, she's often written off as being someone who is utterly clueless politically. But if you think of what she had lived through and how she had managed to manoeuvre her way through it and survive, Mary knew an awful lot about the Tudor court and Tudor politics by the time she came to the throne. Uh, and she had a vision of, of how to govern um, in concert with a council that was probably too 
large, uh, really, and rather unwieldy, but, but you know, in consultation uh, with people. And she was much more dedicated in that respect. Queen than Elizabeth attended very few council meetings and found the whole thing tiresome and boring, whereas Mary attended almost everything and stayed up until at least midnight going through papers, even as her eyesight failed. She was a very conscientious queen. And of course, one of the things that had held her together in all that time uh, was her religious faith. So it's hardly surprising that she would wish to see this uh, revived in a way that she thought uh, fitted and was suitable to England. Uh, and despite her reign being viewed as an aberration in that respect, uh, you know, trying to go back to something that was permanently lost, I think most historians now would agree, though this isn't what the popular mind still understands, that that was not the case, that, that in some respects it's Edward VI reign that was the aberration mm -hmm. between Henry's and, and Mary's, that he, he and his advisors had gone too far and too fast down a, a reforming road, which hadn't yet kept pace with the interests and, and deeper beliefs of the entire populace. And certainly the return to Catholicism was not nearly as unpopular as it's often been made out in, in, in popular histories of Mary. There was a diaspora, of course, as you know, a lot of people did go to, to Europe. But I don't think most people realise that, that Protestantism gained hold in uh, what was then England, you know, in, in Greater Britain, though it hadn't got into Scotland very much by that time through the ports and commercial areas that had close links with Europe. Uh, and it, it hadn't fully touched the entire um, community. And so you, you do have this gulf uh, between um, what a small, influential, educated and often well-off uh, group of people believed and wanted to see uh, as the uh, liturgy and the beliefs of the of the English Church, and the wider public yearning for bonfires and feast days and saints' days and and all of these things which had had been the fabric of their life for centuries and centuries, and you don't get that to disappear um, in a space of ten years um, or even twenty, probably. Uh, and and so so Mary's reign did touch a chord with with quite a lot of people. Uh, I, as you've pointed out, I, I didn't seek because you can't seek to defend um, her way of dealing with Protestant opponents. Um, I, and burning is a horrible death, so it, not a lot of fun to be hung, drawn and quartered either, I don't think. No, no there's, not, there's, there's, not a, there's not a lot of great options. <laughs> uh, no, there aren't a lot of great options there. Beheading was merciful under those circumstances. And of course, it, Mary was comparatively speaking, very merciful to political op uh, opponents. Mm. She, she executed the Duke of Northumberland because he had manoeuvred himself into a position that I think he knew it was inevitable. He may have hoped to the last minute that she would reprieve him, but she wasn't going to. I mean, she, she is often hugely criticised for uh, beheading her cousin, Lady Jane Grey, but Jane Grey's father, um, the Duke of Suffolk, had become embroiled in another rebellion in 1654. And there were rebellions against Mary, of course. Um, whether these were against her as a female monarch, um, because she was going to make an international marriage, um, 
one can argue about the sort of religious versus diplomatic aspects of these sort of things. But uh, again, I think it's a popular misconception put about by Elizabeth during her reign that Mary became hugely unpopular because of her marriage to Philip of Spain. But Mary wasn't hugely unpopular even at the time of her death. And at least amongst the nobility and the upper classes, the Spanish marriage was popular. Um, it, It brought with it potentially much more prestige, opportunities in Europe, opportunities for gains in warfare. I mean, Mary's reign um, saw the defeat of the the French at at the major Battle of Saint-Quentin in 1557, which was one of the greatest French defeats of the the 16th century. And of course, it was largely because of um, troops from the Low Countries that the the Spanish uh, ruled, the Habsburgs ruled at that time. Um, But it was widely supported um, by uh, the the English nobility. Uh, And and so, you know, the the loss of Calais and all this rubbish that, that came out of I'm not quite sure where it came out of, probably in the 19th century, about, you know, when I die, you will find Calais graven on my heart. It's amazing how these things get into historical folklore and just stay there. We, we have no record that it, Mary ever said that. And as I imagine you know very well, um, Gareth, Calais was a drain on English resources. <laughs> it, it was a hotbed of... Um, uh, of of people who were disaffected, whether Catholic or Protestant, incidentally. Yeah. Uh, it had been expensive to garrison for years and years and years. And it is instructive that Elizabeth made no attempt to try and get it back. Um, yeah, I think she was not- quite... Pl- I mean, I, you will know this, Linda, when you see the word Calais in any 16th century document, it's not going to be good news. No, it, it, is, <laughs> it isn't going to be good news. No, not at all. But, you know, again, it's part of this whole... Protestant nationalistic ethic um, that, well, not ethic, but but myth, I suppose, is the right word that that, that grew up, and it is terribly hard to um, get people to think again, even if you do so. They do so only grudgingly. I think. Mm. I, I mean, as you know, there are some fine young scholars working on Mary's reputation and, and that at the moment, and I mean, whether they will have an impact on this, I, I suppose over a period of time we all will. But to me, shortly after my book, Anna Whitelock's book came out, and there were a couple of others, more academic subsequently. But none of this has really removed the Bloody Mary label, um, which didn't come until about the middle of the 17th century. I think it sort of started during the Civil Wars, but, uh, you know, it's certainly not contemporary with Mary's life or or even the period afterwards. Well, that actually brings us, I mean, just before I move on to this next question, I actually, as you were saying that, I think you're probably right that long term, you know, this will have a bit of an impact and hopefully in shifting the needle on popular perceptions of Mary. And I think the example that sort of springs to mind is, I, I can't imagine, Eric Ives with Anne Boleyn, I don't yeah. can't imagine there was a lot of um, uh, encouragement from academic circles in the 1980s to to present Anne in the much more sort of positive and political way that he did. That was not what people wanted from Anne Boleyn. They wanted a more romantic yeah. uh, heroine or harpy, but I think eventually it did. But actually, you sort of set up the next question uh, beautifully. Um, sometimes books have different titles, um, as we know, for the British versus the American market. And the American title for Mary Tudor 
was the first Queen of England, the myth of Bloody Mary. And as you say, Mary I is notorious in British culture for that sobriquet of Bloody Mary because her government burned to death just under 300 Protestants between 1555 and 1558. A lot of revisionist, I think particularly sometimes popular works, try to downplay, not always convincingly, uh, the less pleasant aspects of their subject's legacy. And you, as you've said, you know, you didn't do that with Mary I, Linda, you're very clear. This persecution of the Protestants did happen. It was profoundly tragic. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, why that Bloody Mary nickname, which is, as you've said, is not contemporary to her lifetime or, or even really her sister's lifetime, can you tell us why Bloody Mary is ultimately a misleading nickname? Well, I think it's it's misleading for, for, for several reasons. Um, firstly, it sort of takes Mary out of the context of the, the times in, in, in which she lived, um, because burning of religious opponents um, throughout Europe was was not uncommon. Um, it, it's, it, it's harder to defend in terms of the sort of finite amount of time in which it took place. And people always come back if you, if you point out saying, well, actually, Catherine de' Medici and the Valois um, uh, were responsible, whether directly or indirectly, for the massacre of over 10,000 Protestants overnight. Um, in the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve later in the 16th century. Uh, But people sort of go, oh, yes, yes. But, you know, this woman was only on the throne for a very short space of time. Elizabeth, of course, um, put to death. It's reckoned, I think, by someone like Jesse Childs, who knows a lot more about it than I do, um, a couple of hundred um, uh, Catholic priests and and sort of religious, uh, and they're, they're... religious supporters during her reign Uh, and although she had a much longer reign this does come in a period sort of towards the end of it from about the 1580s onwards so uh, the argument that you know Mary is somehow worse because this all happened in a space of a few years whereas Elizabeth executed about two-thirds of the same number of people in a much longer period doesn't really hold water and is anyhow a bit like you know asking how many angels dance on the head of a pin um, I, I think um, Mary's reputation um, rests probably uh, on the Civil War period and then on, you know, the development of England as a Protestant nation um, in, in the image that it, it was that was beginning to develop under Elizabeth I. And in that respect, it is convenient to have a scapegoat. Um, but if you don't recognise that these were intolerant times, and Henry had burned a number of, mm. of um, uh, Catholic opponents, of course, Catholic and Protestant, <laughs> Thomas More was keen on burning people. He um, was, which, yeah. which is uh, something that has only more recently been recognised, um, perhaps overemphasized in Hilary Mantel's books. But, you know, the, the, um, the, the sainted man for all seasons has rather disappeared out of view yes. in, in, in recent <laughs> years. This was what people were like in those days. Uh, I mean, Eamon Duffy, I know Professor Eamon Duffy, whom I respect enormously, um, has uh, uh, print in in his book Fires of Faith uh, suggested that the um, in fact, although it is often claimed by Protestant historians that the burnings were not effective, they were actually effective as a deterrent, and that that they were the numbers were slowing down in in 
of deaths in the year that Mary died. <clears throat> and, and I mean, who am I to, to argue with that? He knows a lot more about <laughs> it than I do. Uh, so I, I think, you know, we live in an intolerant age, anyhow, in which religious terrorism exists. Um, why it should be thought of being something new and particularly reprehensible, but I suppose it's because it was under the um, rule of a queen, and this is thought to be, you know, unfeminine in in, in a way to to indulge in treating uh, your opponents that way. Uh, you also have to understand, I think, which many people don't, um, that. Uh, religious dissent um, against the state religion was was sedition. Uh, uh, sedition is a a, a civil a civil offence, as it were, uh, and that these people were then handed over to the church for um, final sort of say on on how they would be executed, and that that burning was the way that heretics have been dealt with um, through the centuries. Perhaps merciful, mercifully, it fell, it fell out of um, out of usage as a as a, a criminal punishment for religious dissension, uh, and so people uh, associate it with a particularly barbaric uh, way of dispatching opponents. But unfortunately, the the, the age of the tutors are for quite considerable time afterwards was barbaric in yeah. many respects I, I think one of the things that has always intrigued and infuriated me about popular interest in the Tudors um, and I wrote this in the forward for a book that's going to be published by um, Dr Mickey Mayhew next next year um, it, it, is that you know, popular TV and books and all that have made people think that the Tudors were just like us, but in yes. fancy dress. Yeah. And they weren't just like us. They weren't at all like us. The world in which they lived in was entirely different and was framed differently and had different values uh, and was, of course, profoundly ignorant in, in, in many respects. But if you try and, and sort of go back and think, oh, isn't it interesting? Look at all these wives that Henry married. And I, I find the continued interest in things like whether Henry VIII consummated his marriage with Catherine Parr and all this sort of thing. I, I mean, who cares at the end <laughs> of the day? You know, why is this of such interest? I, mean, I, I, I don't know why, but it but it seems to be. Uh, and it, it really isn't important. You know, why can't we start to ask questions about what was it like to be a woman um, uh, of, of uh, you, you know, uh, well, not exactly peasant background, because arguably there weren't peasants in England at the time in the way that there were in places in Europe. But what was it like um, to, to live in a small village and to grow up, you know, one of many children um, and to have to live almost from hand to mouth day to day. What was your daily life like? You know, yeah. how did the hours pass? And, and there is very little interest in this sort of thing. Whereas the six wives of Henry VIII are not remotely representative of no. Tudor women at the time, with one major exception. And that is that they were just as able to die in childbirth or as a result of it. Yeah. Possibly well, is... even more so in some respects. Well, I think with Jane Seymour, probably she actually she was damned by the fact that you know the doctors wanted to to you know she she was they sort of superseded the midwives, which they really shouldn't mm. have. Um, and you're right, actually, it's the other thing that I've I've noticed with that is, and I'm very I, I find myself I don't know if you if you find the same thing 
you know, I, ha- I have been, I think, for most of, of when I've been writing, a, his- a historian of the elite. And I feel sometimes like I'm sort of ping-ponging between two positions because that is yeah. what I write about. But, you know, I, I encountered... I think we see it quite a bit with Anne Boleyn where people sort of say, you know, oh, the commoner. And you're like, I don't really know if we would say today that a Duke's granddaughter and um, someone whose father was in line to inherit an earldom really represent the 99%. Um, One of the things I find profoundly irritating, because I see you on some of these groups occasionally too, are some of these Facebook groups in which people come up with the same ignorant things and the same daft questions again and again and again. And you try and um, query them or suggest they read. I mean, one recently I suggested, you know, what there was something, you know, should we view Catherine Howard as a prostitute? And you think, Jesus (laughs) Christ, you know, is the matter with these people? And I suggested that they read your book. <laughs> you know, we don't need people constantly asking these daft questions. And, and that, that is a special strain of a horror of a question. And I think also what you can encounter, I'm sure you've encountered this as well. Um, you don't mind, I mean, you know, love people asking questions, but often it's, you know, there's, you, you learn to spot, I think quite quickly, people who are asking questions and people who don't want an answer. Yes. You know, yes I think yes. There's, there's two very, yes. you know, and, yeah. and one of the things, I mean, actually it's interesting you say that Linda, because I've noticed this with Catherine Howard actually as well, which is um, I think because the world, the, the the world of the Tudors as as we generally perceive it, is the court. There is a um a misleading perception that, you know, people talk about Catherine Howard as if she was brought up in poverty. Um, because in comparison to the rest of her relatives and the rest of the people in the court, she wasn't as well off. But I, aristocratic poverty is not the same thing as as poverty, you know. In the same way, no, Catherine, it's not. <laughs> you know, when Catherine of Aragon, they say she was in she for seven years. She was in poverty. No, for seven years she wondered was she going to have to sell gold to pay her servants' wages. That's yes. not the same thing. No, um, it's not. The same thing happened to Margaret Tudor up in Scotland, of course. A lady yeah. I'm currently writing about at the moment. But 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 no, you're 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 right. It it, it isn't at all the same thing. And I, I and while as we both know, there were some peculiarities to say the least about being brought up in Granny Tilney's. Yeah. <laughs> in Sussex. I, I mean, even so, you weren't wondering where your next meal was coming from. No, and you know, she had a, a you know, no, she was never, she was never hungry. She never, um, you know, she when she borrowed money, I think, say about 1539, just before she went to court, Catherine was borrowing money for things she wanted, um, like sort of um, a new hat or I, there was a, a woman, a skilled um, embroiderer in Lambeth who she wanted to, she had a bit of silk that she wanted turned into a sort of decorative flower for her dresses. And those are, those are luxury purchases. Those aren't things, you know, she's not borrowing money for essentials. And, and also we know that from things that she said and um, two other women in the household, Catherine Tilney and Alice Restwald, that all of the Duchess's wards had beds, which if you know anything about, yes. you know, <laughs> if you know anything about the Tudor, you know, economy, that is, most people did not have them. Most have a bed. Slept no, on the floor. No. Yeah. Um, 
Well, well I, yeah, well, no, I, 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 but I, I think it, you know the. We may have strayed a little bit from Mary Tudor, but but within what we've been saying, there there, there is a sort of fundamental truth that the the uh, prejudices we have about people in the past uh, can last for centuries, mm. and some people, like you're you're saying, don't want to be rid of them. They like them, they're comforting, and they speak to their their own sort of modern prejudices, presumably. Yeah. But that the, you know the the. Uh, concentration on women um men as well to some degree of high birth um obscures a lot of what Tudor society was really like and it it doesn't necessarily help us understand the past um which is what I have always hoped as a historian I I might be able to do but and there are many women um uh, who who one needs to look at more carefully who've been derided in the past. I mean, often by other female historians. And the person I think really takes the cake is, um, um, I've forgotten her surname, Agnes, uh, the Victorian. Oh, Strickland. <laughs> Agnes Strickland, yes. Yeah. Who absolutely loathed any woman monarch who wasn't Elizabeth I, I think. Yeah. Uh, and is guilty of tremendous character assassination and of m- misunderstanding almost every record that she looked at, actually. That, uh, Agnes Strickland casts a very, very long shadow. She, she, she does. <laughs> yes. But it's one that, you know, if you take... Um, I guess Mary, Queen of Scots, um, mm-hmm. as the other example of someone who's been almost willfully misunderstood through, throughout the centuries. It's strange, strange that they're both called Mary, but it was a very common name in those days for women. Um, I, I, I think you get some idea of how difficult it is to change opinions. Now, opinions on Mary, Queen of Scots have started to move, but they're still a bit like you said, that the sort of, oh, poor dear, look at what happened to her yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and and this doesn't do justice. It misunderstands the history of the time. But um, no, um, Mary was fascinating to, to work on. I, I found in the end uh, a woman who... I suppose admire is is not quite the right word, but whom you do um, for all her failings and for the brutality of the um, Protestant repression. You have to admire as someone who never gave up and who understood the age that she lived in, perhaps better than many people have given her credit for, and wasn't a pathetic little figure um, at all, not in my view. I mean, she... Without her, Elizabeth would have found her reign a great deal more difficult, I think. Uh, uh, And Mary had considerably reformed the Exchequer, admittedly at the behest of her husband, Philip. She had um, uh, rescued Henry VIII's navy from rotting in in the English harbours that it was in. And, And she had... Her vision of England, of course, was that it would be greater in Europe. Um, um, it's fair to say she wouldn't have been a Brexiteer. Uh, and no, no therefore rather unpopular with such <laughs> people nowadays. But, um, you know, at the time, the Habsburgs were the greatest power. Yeah. Uh, and it made uh, would have made a lot of sense. And our history would have been very, very different um, and not necessarily ghastly at all. So, uh, I, I think um, I hope that over a period of time, Mary and her reputation will be considered with less just downright ignorant prejudice than they have been for many centuries. We've spoken a little bit about um, the half dozen uh, famous consorts and misconceptions about them. And in 2010, your next book, um, after your biography of Mary, Catherine the Queen, 
was a biography of Henry VIII's sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. After the political drama of his first two wives, the dynastic importance of his third, and the tragedy of his fifth, um, I think there is a sense among some history fans that Catherine Parr is, quote-unquote, the boring one, the sort of quiet end of the day to the Six Wives saga. And, And that very much is not the Catherine Parr who emerges from your book. What about Catherine Parr most surprised you while writing Catherine the Queen? Um, I think just how lively animated and uh, despite a considerable temper when aroused, um, uh, what an agreeable woman she must have been Mm -hmm. to be, to be around. Um, To me, she seems the most approachable and in many respects actually physically perhaps the most attractive of, of Henry's wives in, in some of her portraits um, but she was also a clever and intelligent woman um, she had been well educated um, um, brought up largely in well to a great degree in her uncle's household with with her cousins but she'd had a, a good education and, and was sort of overseen from afar by Cuthbert Tunstall, who had one of the most long-lived um, careers of any religious uh, bishop or person during the whole of those, those reigns, you know, and he survived all Henry's shenanigans. Um, I think he was fairly old even by the time that, that Catherine was born, but he did. He was a distant relative um, on the par side of the family, and uh, he did. He did sort of supervise Catherine from afar, and may have part, been partly responsible in arranging her second marriage to Lord Latimer. But I mean, she too has a highly dramatic life. She is our most married queen consort, married four times. Um, probably remembered most for her fourth and final marriage to to uh, Thomas Seymour than for, for what went before. Um, but she'd been caught up in the Pilgrimage of Grace. Um, her, her husband. At the time, Lord Latimer, her second husband, had uh, uh, really been almost coerced by the pilgrims to become a spokesman and support them, something for which Cromwell and Henry VIII never really forgave him. Uh, and she had um, she'd lived in different parts of the country, which, again, was quite unusual for, for, for Tudors and the and royalty at that time. Uh, uh, her family were, the Pars were originally from Kendal in um uh, what's now Cumbria, though she was born in the south in London. I mean, I think people up there have tried to perpetuate the myth that she was born at, in um, in the castle in Kendal, but it was already falling into ruin by the time of Catherine's birth. So that seems extremely unlikely. Uh, but you know, she had had a, a happy childhood, though she lost her father at an early age. Her parents were consummate courtiers, just just the kind of people that Henry VII and then later Henry VIII were were looking for. Um, She was well-educated. She had survived a a rather uh, um, challenging first marriage. I mean, she had what looked like the father-in-law from hell in Sir Thomas Borough, who uh, actually cast off one of his daughters-in-law. Catherine must have learned how to deal with him. She was 16 when she went north (coughs) to marry Edward Borough, his his eldest son, um, but but you know she had been in a, 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 a perhaps difficult family situation there, uh, and when her husband died quite young, um, she went off to to live with a relative, uh, Lady Strickland, for a while in in Sizergh Castle. 
And uh, eventually, you know, she was a, ma- a match was arranged with Lord Latimer, who was quite a lot older than her and had two children, one a daughter of eight and the other a boy just about to approach his teens, who seems to have been a difficult stepson, though the girl Margaret adored Catherine. But of course, the, the truth is, by the time she got to Henry VIII, um, she was an experienced wife and stepmother. She wasn't some sort of matronly lady in her late 40s um, who spent all her time on her hands and knees cleaning Henry's um, ulcers. I, I, it's surprised, this is another myth that surprises me that still continues. And I've had two goes at various people who should have known better at correcting this in the last year in which, you know, posts have appeared saying that, that you know, during her time as Queen Catherine Parr nursed Henry VIII. Well, I'm sorry, but queens didn't do that kind of thing. And no. can you imagine Henry VIII <laughs> wanting a woman as a medical advisor? No. I really just she may have had some interest in herbs. A lot of women at the time did, but that's not saying that she nursed Henry VIII. But it's this Victorian view of a yeah. sort of matronly yeah. blue stocking um, in 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 sort of nurse's uniform. Almost, it's a total variance with the kind of woman that Catherine Parr was. A lively, energetic woman, very interested in reading and new ideas, um, given the extraordinary opportunity when only married to Henry for a year of, of actually being regent in his absence in, in France. The last queen who'd been regent was her namesake, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, and it would appear that during the time that she was advised by a council, which included um, Archbishop Cranmer, that he probably introduced her to, to new um to thinking about new religious ideas and the world that opened up beyond it. Because despite, again, this common myth that, you know, Catherine Parr married Henry VIII with a reforming agenda to turn him and the entire country into Protestantism, she was married in a Catholic ceremony by Stephen Gardiner, whose, (laughs) you know, adherence to Protestant ideas is not um, very well, well, didn't exist, of course. So, uh, you know, we look at things. It's a classic case of hindsight, isn't it? You know, this woman became interested in um, reforming religion. So she must have been like that when she married Henry VIII. But he wouldn't have married her if he thought there was even the slightest taint of that around her. Mm -hmm. And of course, it later turned out that when he discovered um, which he seems to have done almost rather absentmindedly and by accident and via the innocent um, uh, approach of Elizabeth I, who translated some of her stepmother's um, uh, religious writings, uh, and Henry sort of suddenly realised, what is my wife doing? <laughs> is she upstaging me on this kind of thing? So it, 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 she, she, I think she's a very appealing woman, um, a lively intellect, um, a, a capacity to bring people together, to remind the king that he had children, uh, to write to him when he wasn't there about them and what they were doing. Of course, that could be part of a clever strategy to ensure her own position because it, it gives her a kind of role. Uh, she's, I, I have always really liked Catherine Parr and I like the fact that she loathed her, her sister-in-law, Edward Seymour's wife, uh, <laughs> and, Stano, um, and referred to her in a very rude and unladylike way um, in, in the jargon of the time in some of those, in, in some of the letters she wrote. And I mean, her, her final marriage after Henry's death, which was a, a love match, um, it is one, it's, I suppose it's probably really the first um, uh, 
set of love letters between people of that rank that, that that we have from that from that period of time the things that she the letters that she and Thomas Seymour exchanged and yeah, of course um something seems to have gone wrong in her marriage with Henry in the um summer of 1546 uh, and of course in in John Fox's acts and monuments but the the story that that Henry um planned to or at least that that the religious conservatives tried to to rid him of Catherine Parr uh, and that there was actually a warrant for her execution and all this sort of thing it is not substantiated by any actual contemporary evidence it didn't surface until the first edition of the acts and monuments by which time all of the major principles were dead um, and again, it may be that Fox had heard this from Cranmer or someone like that, but we don't know what the source is. What we do know is that Catherine was clearly spooked, uh, Catherine Parr, in the summer of 1546. She had um, she hid all her religious books and had the locks on her trunks and everything changed, which, which suggests that she certainly knew that there might be manoeuvres against her. Henry's involvement in all of this, um, we simply don't know. Um, but certainly the, um, any difficulties were mended. And in the last months of his life, he showered her with jewels and dresses, you know, as he had done. I think he had a very genuine affection for her. But of course, by that time, he was extremely unwell and very unpredictable mentally and emotionally. So uh, it may be that there is some truth in the story, but the story itself and its detail um, is probably partly fictional at, at any rate. So uh, and, and I think the real tragedy of Catherine Parr's life comes right at the end. Uh, of course, in Thomas Seymour, she found a husband who was dashing and handsome, but not necessarily, you know, the man she had perhaps hoped to marry. They were both disappointed. She wasn't going to be regent to Edward VI. He wasn't going to be Lord Protector. Um, there are some documents which suggest that Catherine had thought that she was going to be regent. She does actually sign herself as Catherine, but we don't know what their date is. I mean, I've seen them in the in the National Archives, but they're undated. So, you know, it, it's hard to know quite, quite what to make of them. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, at the point that she married um, Thomas Seymour and they got the wardship of both the Lady Elizabeth and Lady Jane Grey, though the two young women didn't live in the same household, uh, she she must have felt frustrated, but hoped that perhaps her personal life would be happier. But Tom Seymour wasn't the easiest of husbands, and of course he found Gareth that that um, uh, you you have to budget rather heavily for a woman who has been a queen. <laughs> she's still a queen after all. She's still Queen Catherine. Well, Linda, she doesn't have that. She doesn't have her nursing side gig. Side. Uh, no, no, she doesn't. No, no, that's perfectly true. And she comes with a, a staff of up to three hundred people, and this costs a hell of a lot of money. And also, I think he was quite a possessive husband, or at least she accused him of, of being so on her deathbed. But she was delirious. By by then but of course as you know she she did become pregnant though she doesn't seem to have been pregnant in any of her earlier marriages there are some hints that she might have been in the first marriage but we don't know for sure uh, and certainly she was never pregnant by Henry VIII as far as we know though he you know he he uh, he still harbored hopes that he there might be another Duke of York uh, but she did become pregnant um there was clearly some um how to put it uh, I mean 
behavior that raised eyebrows um, where Thomas Seymour and Elizabeth were concerned. Uh, I mean, again, this is something you better not get me started on this. You know, this is child abuse. And oh, yes. And uh, and women, uh, girls of 12 were of marriageable age and Elizabeth was 14. Uh, And, you know, this is this is a 21st century response. Um, to something that happened a long time ago and was undoubtedly viewed as irregular. I don't think anyone could argue against that. And Seymour had had it pointed out to him. Uh, uh, But anyhow, um, Elizabeth left um, uh, the household of Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour towards the end of Catherine's pregnancy, if not in disgrace, certainly under some kind of cloud, because you can tell that from the letter she wrote to Catherine uh, subsequently. There seems to have been perhaps a difficult interview, and it was sort of intimated that maybe Elizabeth should move on somewhere else, which she did to Sir Anthony Denny and his wife. Um, And nevertheless, she seems to have retained um, a a sort of permanent fondness for, for her stepmother and for Seymour, to whom she wrote subsequently, you know, not in any way which implies that she couldn't stand him or was terrified of him or anything like that. Uh, and of course, Catherine moved to Sudley Castle um, with Jane Grey and died there, um, having given birth at the, the very end of August, um, 1548, uh, with one of her major things that she'd been writing on, the um, Erasmus's paraphrases of the Gospels of the New Testament, um, which um, she had got various people to translate, including um, Mary I, who had worked on the Gospel of St. John, which must have been one of the most difficult. And again, I think people can't understand how this was a Protestant queen. How come she is using a Catholic to, mm-hmm. to do this? But, you know, people didn't see things in that kind of black and white in, in those days. And um, the marriage to, to Tom Seymour did seem does seem to put a bit of a rift between Mary and um, and 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 Catherine, but I, I think the manner of her death is very very sad. You know, she died of puerperal fever, which took many many women in those days, and uh, uh, of course her little daughter was eventually handed over by Thomas Seymour when he was you know facing death um, for for treason. Um, which his own brother signed his death warrant. They weren't a nice lot, the Seymours, actually, I don't think. I've never liked Jane Seymour, I have to say, but still. And I was never much of a fan, although I have to say, I've I've just, uh, there's a chapter on her in the book I've just finished working on, although it's more about um, the Bassett sisters when they come to join her household. And I I did, I was really impressed by... um, It's not a, it it was a tougher Jane Seymour than I think I'd given... um, credit to before because you she does seem to have been quite firm and skilled at managing her household uh, which I think is I I hadn't given her due no I I must admit I probably didn't either I think I've always thought she must have been fairly clever and canny because she played her part brilliantly um, in the weeks, you know, around the the overthrow of, of, of Anne Boleyn. I mean, the, the way that she was manoeuvred into Henry's presence and the way she handled herself, um, a, a silly or insubstantial woman couldn't have been able to do, I don't think. No, n- not at all. And um, and actually then to, to move on to someone who has been, Linda, you've set all these questions up beautifully, to move on to someone who's um, who has also been dismissed um, 
by some historians uh, in 2013, your third book was released in the United Kingdom with the beautiful title Crown of Thistles, The Fatal Inheritance of Mary, Queen of Scots, published in the United States as Tudor versus Stuart. Crown of Thistles is a rich history of the Scottish monarchy at the tail end of the 15th century through into the late 16th. Uh, I wanted to quote from your author's note for Crown of Thistles because it, it, this right at the start really spoke quite strongly to me. Uh, I'm reading here. The idea for this book came to me when I realized that my knowledge of 16th century history in the British Isles was heavily weighted towards England. There is a great deal more to the past of these islands than Henry's six wives and the mythical golden age of his youngest daughter. Wales and Ireland have, of course, their own stories to tell, but it was Scotland in particular and the long-standing rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts that intrigued me. So I think it, it's it's fair to say that most people's interaction, Linda, with 16th century Scottish history kind of begins and ends. If yes, with, with, with Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. And it's and it is it's an enormous pet peeve of mine to put it mildly that British history is taken by far too many people to mean English history only, uh, with everything else being treated as somehow a bit of a distraction, not quite as relevant. What do you think books like Crown of Thistles can show us about the British journey through history and the richness of, of that story? Well, I, I think they can show us how fascinating it is, how um, important different parts of these islands were to each other, um, which is a, a dimension we lose completely if we focus solely on England. And also, I mean, the, the the islands, whether people like it or not, are part of Northwestern Europe. Uh, and you can see that much more if you look at the other countries of the British Isles, uh, particularly because the Stuarts um, uh, and ever more so under James IV of Scotland were, were trying to, to move much more into being accepted in their own right as Renaissance kingdoms, uh, uh, as a Renaissance kingdom. Um, and the, 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 there is a, a rich literary and a fascinating political history and, and social history in, in the other countries as well. And if you, to me, Gareth, it seems that if you ignore that, you actually diminish England as well. Yes, I agree. Uh, because you, you give it a kind of, false overarching importance which it, which it actually didn't have and people are starting to look at this a bit more now I mean um, Estelle Perank is shortly to bring out a book on um, Elizabeth's relationship with Catherine de Medici you know yes. um, Claire Jackson has just written a book which admittedly is on a later century from 1588 to 1688 um, uh, which uh, doesn't show um England looking at Johnny, Johnny Foreigner, it shows Johnny Foreigner looking at, at, at us and thinking, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, um, it has quite a lot of uh, current resonance, all of this, I think. And uh, it, it, it does actually, it, it, it reduces us to Henry VIII and his six wives if we, if we don't consider um, the, the other parts of, of the um of the British Isles. I mean, as a, a slight aside, um, I had no idea about um, the history of Ulster in the early 17th century until I read the wonderful books of um, 
Shona McLean on the her her um, Alexander Seton series. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I absolutely I think Shona McLean is a wonderful historical fiction writer. Anyhow, I adore all her books. But I thought, goodness, I I don't know anything about this. Right. You know, and 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 I'm probably in a position to know, or should be in a position to know rather more about it than than the average person. So I. I think there is still an awful lot to go on there, and possibly historical fiction can play quite a useful role in all of this. Well, I've I've gotten um, I mean, I've gotten a little bit of pushback. I, I think from someone who probably wasn't interacting in good faith, but um, they were. Uh, we were having a debate on Henry VIII, and they were saying, you know, he wasn't this sort of um, monster. You know, people tend to forget that he could, you know, he was a very talented musician and he could speak these languages and he was interested in astronomy and theology and all the rest of it. And I said, yeah, that's great. Um, it's also, you know, kind of irrelevant in terms of, <laughs> in, in, in terms of him as a king. Um, as a biographer, yes, that's all fascinating. You know, the, the personal interests of Henry VIII. But um Kings are are judged by writing good laws, not by composing good music. That's not that's not the criteria. And when I um, pushed back and said, you know, look at what he did in Ireland, the in no uncertain terms was I sort of told that that wasn't as important as what he did in England. And I said, well, he was the one who accepted the Crown of Ireland Act. You yeah, know, he was yeah. king of Ireland. And I think actually, we are. You're right. I I think it does. It's not in any way a disservice to the history of England. It's actually a service to it to say if we set this in a wider context and, and start to look at Welsh, Scottish, Irish and Manx and the Channel Islands history yeah, in a yeah. more inclusive way. We in just a more get, holistic way, yeah. Yeah, I just think no, we get I, a, I a much richer story. And, and nothing's, no history is diminished by bringing more into it. It just gets richer. I exactly. Think. And I mean, what an extraordinary history Scotland had mm-hmm. um, at, at that time. Uh, I, uh, of course, people overlooked the fact, I mean, there was something I saw on Twitter just recently, and one of these sort of ill-informed and and, and uh, slightly patronising views that, um, you know, weren't we nice essentially to let um, James the Sixth and First come in as as uh, 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 King of England to, to unite the two countries, which of course he didn't do. He only united the two crowns. Right. Countries weren't united until 1707. But this again is a point that you have to hammer home constantly. Yeah. And I mean, this is all very well, but the Stuarts had been a, a dynasty since 1371. Yeah, they didn't lasted, really need you to be nice to them. <laughs> no, they didn't. And lasted a great deal longer than the Tudors ever did. And there is an underlying point there, which I know. Um, Professor Julian Goodair at the University of Edinburgh would probably pat me on the head for saying because he, <laughs> when I first when I first met him to discuss this um, because I you know I do try with my books to think look you know I better start off by talking to someone who knows what they're talking about so off I went to Edinburgh to look at my records and all that sort of thing there and met um, Dr Goodair and he said look in what you're writing please, will you not represent all the Scottish nobility as murderous thugs? Now, it is true that many of them were murderous thugs, Gareth, but um, (laughs) not all of them were. And beyond that, this group of of people managed to keep their country together and to govern it 
with reasonable responsibility and success for centuries. Um, so, you know, the, the, there is this extraordinary dichotomy. Um, and if you read more carefully, of course, uh, in Jenny Wormold and people like that, you understand um, mm. that, that the blood feud has a, has a legal as well as a sort of emotional, I'm going to kill you kind of uh, for killing someone I know basis. And, and uh, that, it, you know, that, that there is a, an accepted justice behind some of this behaviour. But to the to the to the rest of the world, I think it, I mean it does seem an extraordinary bloody history. Um, but in it, there are some absolutely fascinating people, and I I didn't. I mean, I knew about isolated things um, like um, the Battle of Flodden and Margaret Tudor's marriage to James the Fourth and things like that, which I really didn't know. Um, very much else. And I, I mean, I have to say, even now, beyond James III of Scotland, I know <laughs> further back, I know very little. Uh, but I, I thought it would be fascinating to, to look at this and compare because, I mean, it, it, most people don't realise that, that you have a king of England, essentially, usurping the throne um, or uh, taking it away from another usurper in 1485. And just three years later in Scotland, you have a 15-year-old boy um, in rebellion against his own father and, and becoming king. And this um, uh, this is a good story. Uh, you know, I, I yeah. like telling these kind of stories. And beyond the story, there, there is the wider importance of the way this, this played out in Anglo-Scottish relations, um, in relations between France and uh, the Triangle of Scotland, England and France. Uh, uh, there, there are all sorts of... Um, larger than life people and interesting things going on. And I I must admit that I've, I've always had a very soft spot for James IV, who's been sadly almost written out of Scottish history in many respects because, because he lost and died at the Battle of Flodden. And as you know, history is not kind to people who uh, meet that, that sort of fate. No. Uh, but, but he was an extraordinary man, you know, a... A polymath um, interested in the sciences, in military technology, which might have contributed to his downfall on the day of his death, in fact, in, in dentistry, you know, hapless Scottish nobles who all flocked to his court because James had that innate understanding that many Tudor monarchs had that the court must be the centre. And if you want to control um, and motivate your nobility, then, then you make it like that. So, you know, hapless nobles who happened to complain of a toothache were subjected to the king's attempts at dentistry. <laughs> Most of them probably kept quiet. Actually, yeah, I imagine there was a lot of wisdom teeth pain that was just not Yeah, I would, not I would think so. <laughs> uh, and, you know, his... Um, uh, he is a very colourful and, and attractive figure, um, interested in almost everything. Um, arguably, his government was running into trouble at the time of his death, but, you know, he had managed to um, uh, to deal with his finances to, to some degree. Um, and he had uh, trained his wife, Margaret Tudor, who was years younger than him, of course, and who'd married him at the age of 13, which is also the kind of thing that is, you know, shock horror nowadays. But, you know, she was... Um, she would have viewed herself uh, as a fully functioning woman and capable of taking on the role of queen consort. It is, after all, what she'd been trained for uh, at that time. And, and although the marriage might occasionally have... I mean, James was a, a terrible womanizer, And he, he did, 
he did sort of become a bit more discreet after he married Margaret, but he didn't give up other women completely. Um, Margaret discovered when she married him that one of his illegitimate children was already in situ in Stirling Castle and <laughs> had her rather promptly removed. Um, <laughs> but uh, it does seem to have been a successful match. Uh, and James realised that in this this sort of quite intelligent um she wasn't great beauty her sister mary was, was reputedly very beautiful but but margaret wasn't um but but you know certainly presentable and queenly and gracious girl he uh, he could make and forge a consort worthy of the kind of court that he wanted in the country that he wanted to be seen as. And uh, her story is a very interesting one. It's one I'm currently writing at the moment. But uh, no, um, Mary, Queen of Scots is often, you know, written off as a silly ninny who couldn't govern a country that she came back to, um, uh, you, you know, and, and got involved with all the wrong men, you know, th this sort of thing. You should never have married Darnley. But it's very easy to say that in hindsight. It made a lot of sense to marry Darnley at the time. They both had a claim to the English throne. You know, uh, if they produced a child, this would give them uh, a, a very strong uh, situation vis-a-vis -vis the um, childless Elizabeth I. Uh, and it, it, it's true that Darnley was a thoroughly unpleasant young man, <laughs> um, but he, it wasn't such a, a stupid thing to, to do at the time. Uh, and uh, it, it, the fact that Mary had ruled Scotland in difficult circumstances with reasonable success between when she returned from France in 1561 and sort of 1566, um, 67, you know, it was Darnley's murder that, that really... Uh, uh, caused such a great deal of, of disruption and, and upheaval. <coughs> and what Mary's role in that was, I don't think we'll ever know. The Stuarts are certainly becoming um, something, uh, you know, a much more interesting focus. In 2016, saw the release of your book, Royal Renegades, about the children of King Charles I, the second Stuart King to rule all of the British Isles. Charles's rule and his children's lives were, of course, eventually decimated by the civil wars of the 1640s. I could be wrong here, but to the best of my knowledge, no one had really looked at that crisis from the perspective of the royal children before. What drew you to, to their story? Um, to be truthful, I'm not sure I precisely remember, but it was, <laughs> it, it was I, I think, because... Um, some of them are not very well known, um, particularly the tragic Princess Elizabeth Stuart yes, and yeah. uh, her younger sister, um, Princess Henrietta Stuart, um, who was born in Exeter like me uh, and, and who became sort of Henriette Anne at the court of um, Louis XIV in France when she was spirited away there. I think I saw it as a way of trying to tell the story of the Civil War through their eyes uh, and certainly it, it, it was quite a quite a challenging book to write because there is a huge amount of material that one has yeah. to deal with. And the, the children are all quite different. And they are, if you like, a microcosm of what happened to many families in the Civil War. Um, Elizabeth, Mary and Henry were Protestant and raised that way and remained firmly Protestant during all of their lives. Um, Charles, James and Henrietta, as she becomes, though um, she was christened 
as a Protestant at the Fontaine Exeter Cathedral, uh, was brought up as a Catholic by her mother expressly against the the wishes of Charles the First, and Henry Etta Maria didn't listen to him too much on that kind of thing. No. <laughs> so, so, and and also, they're not just divided by religion; they were divided physically. Uh, Charles, of course, fled to the Channel Isles and then uh, to France, and finally to wander all around, you know, the Low Countries, Belgium, Germany, and uh, the Netherlands. Uh, uh, in in during his fourteen years of exile, um, James eventually joined him in exile, um, having been <laughs> abandoned by his father when his father fled from Oxford to hand himself over to the Scottish army in 1645. And uh, it, it so they're separated geographically as well. Uh, and I think it's particularly the story of the younger children, um, James to some degree, uh, and also particularly Elizabeth and Henry. People just don't know anything about them. And it, it is an absolutely tragic story. It, it, it really is. Uh, the older children were taken by their parents to Hampton Court shortly after Charles's uh, unsuccessful foray into the House of Commons at the beginning. Yeah, of that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that was not a happy trip. No, but... it wasn't. <laughs> and the others were, well, Henrietta wasn't born then, but the other two were just abandoned. They were sort of left in London. No one seems to have thought anything about them. Uh, and they were eff- effectively hostages during the whole of the civil wars and, and even subsequently during the Commonwealth. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they were passed through a succession of, of um, I think, extremely well-intentioned and probably responsible um, nobles, um, the Earl of Pembroke and then the Earl of Northumberland, who were all opponents of the, they were opponents of the king, of course, and supporters of Parliament. And Northumberland in particular was a guardian for whom the children had a great deal of affection. Uh, and he, he had to meet all of the costs of looking after them himself. You can see all of that found his expenses for various years, everything down to bootlaces and buttons and all that sort of thing in in the archives in the West Sussex Record Office. Um, They're they're in um, papers there. Uh, And it's it's quite extraordinary to consider that these, you know, these children were more or less forgotten and abandoned. And uh, they were, to some degree, hostages to Parliament. Um, And... And against the the backdrop of the civil war, of of its sort of ebbs and flows, their their lives went on. Um, Elizabeth had a lady tutor, Bath Sewer-making, and was apparently, you know, really quite a brilliant girl intellectually. She was good at mathematics and all, all sorts of other academic subjects, but suffered almost from her earliest childhood from very poor health. Uh, and Henry seems to have been a fine and bright little boy. Um, and James was more difficult. <laughs> I mean, I feel perhaps, like that's, that's sort of the... the, the that perhaps be, an indication of what he was to have become later. Linda, that might be his epitaph. James it was might more be. Difficult. Yes, it might well be. <laughs> but I, I hugely enjoyed writing about them. I have to say, Gareth, that it was the least successful commercially of all my books, perhaps because I had made the switch from the Tudors to the Stuarts. It also came out in October, which is not the best month to publish a book unless you're, you know, a really top name because you get subsumed in the Christmas rush. 
um, and it got very few reviews. I was ever so disappointed, I, I, I have to say, at the time, because people who have read it really like it. And I, I loved it, and I'm not just yeah. saying that because I still I, you're think, here. <laughs> I, in some respects, although Crown of Thistles is my favourite of my books, I think Royal Renegades may actually be the best in terms of, you know, being a straight sort of history book. Um, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to talk about it now. And I will be next month when I, I do this talk for the for the Cromwell Museum, um, which is going to be on the, the meeting of um, James and uh, Elizabeth and, and Henry with Oliver Cromwell, um, which I'm sure not many people knew took place, um, but it did in the Greyhound Inn in Maidenhead yes. in summer yeah. of 1647. Um, and it, it shows an interesting and, I think, uh, side of Cromwell that most people either won't want to know or possibly don't know. Um, I, I think so his I, supporters I, and detractors, uh, he got quite emotional, didn't he? When He, he did. Yes, yeah. he, yes, yeah. yes, he did get quite emotional because he had lost a son himself in the Civil War and been separated from his family for long periods of time. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful sort of cameo almost, this, this yeah. meeting. And particularly of little Henry, um, who had been, well, two or just under two probably at the time he had last seen his his father. Because, again, of course, even in these times, we've moved on um, a century or more from, from the Tudors we were talking about just now. But royal children did not live with their parents. Even in those days, they were brought up in separate households, separately tutored with their own governesses and governors and all that sort of thing. And though Charles and Henrietta Maria were quite fond and indulgent parents and saw their children often, they did not live with them. Um, uh, and, and that was that that was that was still a commonplace. And uh, uh, when Charles the, the first, who of course had been um, removed by the famous Cornet Joyce um, into the custody of the army just a few months before, uh, said to little Henry, um, do you know me, child? Mm. Henry said, no. That was, I, uh, and I, I find that ter terribly, terribly sad. Uh, well, one of Charles I's children in particular stayed with you uh, for the next four years, although one gets, <laughs> one gets sort of haunted you, uh, although one gets the impression that he might not have been the most agreeable company. Uh, in 2020, your critically acclaimed book, Mistresses, was released, chronicling the many adulteries of King Charles II, who ruled Britain from 1660 to 1685. The court of, I mean, talking about sort of popular uh, opinion, the court of that time is generally quite affectionately remembered with the long wigs for men, the fantastic hats, the plunging necklines. The Restoration era is the fun one in a general view of, of British history. But in Mistresses, you take Charles II's reputation as the merry monarch to task and you show your readers a much more sexually and politically feckless person. There's also a chapter in the book about, uh, my next book about, um, and again, I spent a lot of time with your books this year. <laughs> um, there's also a chapter in the Hampton Court book on um, Charles's mistress, Barbara, Countess of Castle. Oh, yes, Barbara. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and my views, and I have to say, on Charles II were absolutely shifted by your arguments in mistresses. How did your impression of Charles II change? And were there many surprises while researching mistresses? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I had, I suppose, uh, well, let's go back a long way. Uh, as a child, 
I remember listening absolutely fascinated on um, um, the the uh, children's radio hour um, on to uh, a, a, a dramatized version of Hunt Royal, and it started. Its theme music was that wonderful one from um, uh, from Purcell um, that, that's used as the um, basis for Britain's um, Oh yes, guide yeah. to the the. Uh, uh, to, to the orchestra, I think it's Abdelaziz's feast or something. Here, I mean, my ignorance of Purcell is coming out here. I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I was so fascinated by the music and story, and and you know Charles telling the tale of his adventures to a wandering Catherine of Braganza and all this sort of thing. Uh, and so you know, I had this this fairy tale version of 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 the court of of Charles II. Uh, I began. Um, well, Renegades, actually, by reading Ronald Hutton's biography of Charles II. And at the beginning of it, he says, and I think um, it's, or maybe at the end, I can't remember where his author's note is, but I think it's true of a lot of us who have worked on Charles II, um, that he came to dislike him quite intensely. <laughs> and you can you can see why. Um, uh, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I dislike him intensely, but I, I do not understand and think it must have something to do with the sort of deeper, um, <laughs> some of the deeper traits in, in society in general that, you know, Charles II is still viewed as, you know, a bit of a lad, sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink sort of thing. Whereas actually he was really, he was feckless in many ways, though he did manage to hold on to his throne, as everyone has said, though perhaps with more difficulty than many people assume. And one of the things I do point out in the book um, is that right from the beginning, it was a very divided country, um, not just because of, of um, the difficulties with Ireland and Scotland, um, which continued, though, of course, he brought Scott Lauderdale brought Scotland um, under his thumb quite effectively fairly early on. Um, not that it was necessarily a great place to live, but you know, in terms of government, it didn't. Charles had had Charles II had a nasty experience in Scotland in 1650-51 um, when he came back and had himself crowned as King of Scotland, and then of course made the disastrous route march down, which ended with the Battle of Worcester and had to flee all over again. And, and, and Charles had disliked Scotland so much while he was there that he never set foot in it again. I'm not sure that they were sorry to see the back of him, incidentally. But um, <laughs> anyhow, um, I uh, when I started to write the book, I realised that, you know, that there were still great divisions. Um, this all this jolly stuff about how he was fated and greeted at the Restoration is true up to a point, but there were still... Um, Catholics and non-conformists who uh, had great reason to suspect, be suspicious rather, of, of what he might be going to do. Um, and I, the, the other thing I think that's not widely appreciated about Charles is just how disastrous his foreign policies were and how yeah. humiliating for this country. I mean, a Dutch fleet comes up in the Medway and destroys everything in its path. Uh, and, uh, you know, he became in the secret treaty of Dover, uh, essentially a pensioner of France. He sold this country, England, and not, not the whole of the country, but he sold England to, to, to the French um, for a not entirely brilliant um, pension from Louis XIV. Now, it's true he proceeded to honour absolutely none of the things that he would agree to do. He didn't send many troops to support Charles, uh, to support Louis XIV in his fight against Charles's own nephew, um, 
William III of Orange, who would become William III of, of Britain later on, he didn't um, adopt Catholicism as the national religion, but he did still happily take the money. His cleverness and intelligence, I don't think, are in dispute. I think he was intellectually lazy. Um, he dabbled in all sorts of things, a bit like some of his Stuart forebears, actually. I mean, he dabbled in scientific things and all that sort of thing. But he, I, I find him... At one stage, I think in the proposal that I did, but not in the book I wrote, I thought he was an enigma even to himself. And I, I, I would stand by that. I, I don't understand really what drove him other than the desire for hedonism and a determination that he would weave his way through the increasing political turmoil of his reign, the whole problem with the succession you know, the exclusion crisis of 1679 to 81, in which they they tried to um, replace his brother, James Duke of York, in the succession with James Duke of Monmouth. Um, you can't, can't imagine a, a more desire. <laughs> what a choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In retrospect, neither was really much of a starter. Um, but uh, <laughs> Charles, Charles II, for all of his apparent sort of easiness of manner, was a dynast. Uh, and he there was no, he didn't even have a great, I think James Duke of York was much fonder of Charles than Charles was of James Duke of York. Um, but he was determined that without a legitimate heir and the fact that he had, depending on whether you count um Barbara Villa's youngest child, who was probably the child of, of um, the future Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill. He had 13 or 14 illegitimate children and plenty of sons amongst them. He wasn't ever, in my view, ever, ever going to agree. I mean, we do not have a history in these islands of putting illegitimate children on the throne. Some European countries did in Portugal. It, it happened fairly often in the, in the sort of Middle Ages, yeah. I think. But it, it it just never happened here. And I don't think he was ever going to do it. And it, um, while I have sort of, I'm afraid, slapped down a couple of, of women who said, but he was nice to his wife. He didn't mm. divorce her. Well, if you... If you, yes, he didn't divorce her, but I don't think Catherine of Aragon would ever, um, Catherine Braganza, sorry, would ever have thought that he was really nice to her. No. And she is one of the people I discovered in the book who I think, again, um, perhaps in her case, even more so than someone like Mary, Queen of Scots, deserves much more recognition and a, and a no. really good um popular, scholarly, but accessible biography of, of a woman who has been consistently written off as a, a weepy, um, over-religious dope, and who, who managed to forge a really quite interesting and separate existence for herself, and who I think needs to be respected for that, and who had to stay in this country after Charles's death until 1694, because first of all, James II wouldn't let her go because she was Catholic, of course, and then William III and Mary, who treated her with extreme rudeness still. And of course, they didn't even her brother didn't want her back in Portugal, poor woman. She was finally allowed to go back. And in the last year of her life, she ruled very capably as, as regents. And I, I think, I mean, she ends the book, as you know, with yes. the um, Earl of Chesterfield, who'd been her Lord Chamberlain, and who was an early lover of the dreaded Barbara Villas, Lady Castlemaine, uh, saying that, you know, he thought she, she was a remarkable princess and a remarkable woman. And I, I, I think that's true. So I, I suppose I found her out as as a much more interesting figure. I also found, I, I mean, again, one can overemphasize these things, but I think that the role of um, 
Nell Gwynn as Charles II's favourite mistress has been terribly overplayed. Yeah. And I don't think even Charles would have described her as his favourite mistress. No, I think um, I think people like, I think that's interesting because that's a conflation, don't you think, of what we want with what Yes, I it is. Yes, I think, it was. I think she, she's my favourite reading. I I, I I have a soft spot. Yes, Nell, I do Nell too. Gwynn. And yeah. it's the story of the, you know, little orange girl who became very yeah. successful and apparently and very had, good. I had poisoned her rival with laxatives, which is Yes, which, which is, which is <laughs> Um, a naughty thing to have done and she does seem to have been a genuinely apart from that warm-hearted and, and sort of generous to to uh other people but she uh it, you know it, it charles's favorite mistress i think overall one would have to say was um was louise de carouai um yes. his, his breton mistress the one he called fubs which was uh, an old I, word being tubby yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And i didn't know i mean this i don't know if you had this experience with um mistresses because obviously yours was over a whole book I am genuine when I when I was sort of submitting the manuscript for the Hampton Court book I thought am I are my editors going to believe the chapter in Charles II because there's so I mean it's it just reads as kind of you know six degrees of separation by seduction and even the fact that he you know he called his mistress louise as she say fubs because yeah. she she wasn't thin and then he named his yacht fubs i mean yes, they- <laughs> yes i mean it's it does show a degree of affection there whether it's well she ended up as duchess of richmond and with lands in france of course and uh I mean, her papers are all in the West Sussex Record Office as well. And she became a very fond great-grandmama. And I mean, she is the ultimate survivor. She is. Uh, especially when you consider that Charles had infected her with a sexually transmitted disease when during the early part of their yeah. relationship, which made her very ill. I mean, these are some of the less nice things about Charles II, as you know. But she survived everyone else by 50 years, dying in, in 1734 in Paris. <laughs> I mean, she was one remarkable old girl in the end. She was. I, I actually was a lot more fond of Louise after reading Mistresses. Than yes, I yeah. I, I, but, but um, I mean, uh, she tried to have political influence. This is a question which perhaps I didn't directly address in the book, but referred to obliquely. I mean, did any of these women have um, a great deal of influence on Charles II? Did anyone come to that? Yeah. And I, I think the answer is no, not, not really. Um, uh, Louise was important because she was perceived by yes. politicians yeah. on the make to have influence over Charles, but I don't think she did very much. I think he he ploughed his own furrow. And the image of him, I think, which I find most powerful is, is of him alone sailing, because I think that's him. I think, you know, alone at sea with the wind and the, the tides and the currents and all that, I think that's when he was happiest. And he, he did love women. He was a man who obviously loved women and treated them mostly with considerable uh, degree of financial generosity at any rate. Yes. Um, and he was an affectionate father. That ran in the Stuarts, um, possibly not James I. Well, I don't know, James VI and I. I think he did love his children, I think, in a rather odd way. Um, but the rest of them, whether they were legitimate or illegitimate children, all seemed to have been very fond of them. Whereas I don't think you could, well, Henry VII was fond of his children. Uh, Henry VIII, who knows? <laughs> not really, I don't think. Um, not until Catherine Parr sort of reminded him that they were they around. Existed, yeah. Um, so, no, I... Um, I have to say, if I'm quite honest, Gareth, on a note to end on, that no one was more surprised by the success of mistresses than me. 
I, I mean, it came out at the height of lockdown when you couldn't do any kind of in-person. In fact, I've never given an in-person talk about it. I've done quite a number of, of um, podcasts, online things and all that sort of thing, but I've never done a face-to-face talk about it. it. To be honest, it wasn't the book I had originally wanted to write a book. So in view of, of Ronald Hutton's recent book, it's probably just as well I didn't. I wanted to write a book called Godly People on the family and friends of Oliver Cromwell. And it was deemed to be insufficiently commercial, which was probably true. I have to say, you know, if I was a publisher and being hard headed, I, I might have made that decision myself. Sure. But I thought it would be a companion to the book on the children of Charles I. That was how I'd intended it, you know, to, to be the the other family, as it were. But um and so I decided to put together a proposal on mistresses and I, I enjoyed writing it um, and thought I'd done, I hoped, a professional job on it. Um, but when it, it got quite a few really good reviews and, of course, one of the advantages, there were disadvantages to lockdown, but there were also advantages in that people were reading a lot. Um, and I, I think that helped. And then, of course, I, ha- I have to say the, the sort of for me, the high point of my career as a writer, because as you may know my background, I've had a very varied career. Um, I was having my my book as the BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week at the end of July. It was thoroughly And to hear Rachel Sterling reading it, because she did such a fantastic job. You know, I I I'm not ashamed to say I was really proud. Well, you well, first of all, we shouldn't be ashamed <laughs> when we're really proud of our books. I think sometimes people try to to take away, you know, the joy and excitement you can have of that. And particularly yes. when it's a book like Mistresses that did that did so, so well, deservedly so. And also I think, I mean. Uh, for me personally, I just, I mean, I didn't have a, a book out at that time, but I was thinking about uh, you know, new releases during uh, a lockdown. And I just think it must be such a, a special feeling for an author to think that at that time, you know, when so many people were finding yeah. it, it yeah. tough, to, you know, Linda, to have written something that was read by so many people and enjoyed by so many people. Yeah, I, I think it was, it special. was, um, um, you know, it was nice escapism for some people. Um, it, it, it is, after all, I suppose, the, the basis of it, you know, quite an amusing book in some ways. Uh, and the people in it are interesting. I, I I, mean, I might just finish by saying, Gareth, that I, you know, to me, Charles II's mistresses, almost any one of them is as interesting, if not more so than The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Uh, and yet they are, you know, they're, they're not viewed. I mean, they, these were all quite clever women in their different ways I mean I I've always thought Barbara Villas was a ghastly woman and I I uh, I think most people at the time thought she was yeah possibly even Charles by the end of it but you know my god she did stand up for her children even if she threatened at one stage to dash one of their brains out if Charles didn't acknowledge it um and she did get the whole titles and quite a lot of money and I mean when you consider it great many of the current nobility of this country are descended from Charles II. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot. It is, it is, it is tough with Barbara. I, you know, I was trying to find, and I think you have to, you know, you're right, absolutely. If you look at certain things, you know, what was the alternative for someone like Barbara? Um, I, the, the success, the ambition, the wealth she had, a forceful personality was necessary. I have to say... I, I do agree with you um, that that she, 
I cannot think of anyone I would I would less want <laughs> to to uh, to have as a friend than Barbara. But I but you know I I think um I think she was she is a fascinating character. They all are that that yeah. kind of yeah. that kind of galaxy. Well, Linda, thank you so much for that. That was so so interesting. I hope everybody enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you, you Gareth. Oh no, it was uh, such a pleasure, uh, listeners. You can find uh, Dr. Linda Porter on Twitter. Her books from all good booksellers. Um, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, comment, all those good things if you've enjoyed this podcast. And my thanks as always to you for your time and to this week's guest, Dr. Linda Porter. Have a happy and safe week. Mm-hmm.